0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 136 for May 9th, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's episode, we talk about adulting and all those things you know you should be doing. Also, recordings from the 2018 SAAs. So, go look up your lawyer's phone number and grab a legal pad, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Joining me today are Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. Bill in Berkeley, California. Hello. And Stephen in Calgary. Hi. And I should say Ruckus in Calgary as well. Yes. <laughs> that was perfect timing too, by the way. Um, okay. So, you know, we actually had quite a few things to talk about today, uh, but we're we're shifting things around a little bit because uh, our next two episodes are are going to be uh well this episode and the and the next episode they're going to be um kind of building off each other because we're going to have a shorter discussion format today but stay tuned for the end of this episode where I'm going to uh basically play some audio uh, I recorded uh, over 20 interviews at the Society for American Archaeology conference that happened in Washington DC in mid April as we're recording this it was like a week ago and uh so yeah in fact it was exactly a week ago uh, I got back on Sunday so anyway um, I'm going to play a bunch of audio clips from there. There's some really good papers and exhibitors that I talk to, uh, or posters, I should say, and exhibitors that I talk to. And I've got you know, just like little three to five minute uh, mini episodes, and I'm going to play those all at the end of this. So stay tuned for that. Um, but for to start off the conversation here... So this episode, the first half anyway, is going to be about those things that are not related to archaeology. They're not related to CRM, but they're related to being a CRM professional. And what I mean by that is, especially early career, when you might not have a full-time job or at least a full-time job in the sense that you have benefits and all those other things, maybe some legal advice, all that other stuff. So there's some things you're going to have to do on your own to just be an adult and be a human and, and get those things done. And things like, things like a will, I mean, you don't think about having a will when you're in your early twenties, but we have a job that takes us to, uh, takes us into honestly dangerous places. If you're working on mines and things like that, possibly working in or around dangerous chemicals, whether or not they're, they're actually at, a, an industrial facility or on a construction project, or you just, I've worked in historic mines before where you're like, what is that smell? And that smell happens to be cyanide sitting in, um, barrels, um, non-toxic for the smell right there. But if you were to get that on your hands and then go eat your sandwich, you just, you know, you're going to be dead by the end of lunch. So anyway, there's a lot of things that we do. And then not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, even if you're you're not just like a really hardcore traveling shovel bum and you're traveling all over the country for jobs, so you're on the road constantly and in, and in constant jeopardy of, you know, having some sort of catastrophic accident uh, on the road. You're always in field vehicles being driven by, well, let's face it, people who you'd probably rather aren't driving the field vehicle. I don't know how many times I've been in a vehicle where the person driving, I was like, Do you have you ever even driven four-wheel drive before? Like, do you know what the hell you're doing? Um, but they're the crew chief, so they feel like they should drive. And so those circumstances are an entirely different conversation. But... What I want to talk about is planning for those things, uh, planning for those circumstances, because if something did happen to you and you were incapacitated and your decision-making power was gone, somebody else is going to make end-of-life decisions for you. And uh, one of the things that you can do to ensure that they make decisions in accordance with your wishes is do your advanced directives. Now, I'm saying this, and it's really on the top of my mind because uh, I'm a veteran, so I go to the VA for my health care, and when I went to my last appointment, my last checkup, my doctor, he's like, "Hey, have you ever done your advanced directives?" Because they're always kind of pushing this stuff on people. And I was like, "No, I haven't." You know, and I turned forty three last week. And he's like, "Well, it's time. Go do, go do these." So he set me up for an appointment. And I went in to the appointment about four days ago, uh, as we're recording this. And I'll tell you what, I was not prepared for what they had to say. He gave me the paperwork, and I read through it, but it was a bunch of legal doctor mumbo jumbo BS. And I was like, "I don't know what the hell's going on." And I went in there, and this woman's like okay, so here's, I'm going to give you five scenarios and here they are. She's like, this is a new baseline. She's like, you're, you're, uh, you know, uh, you're incapacitated. You can't move, you can't do anything, but you have decision-making capability in your brain. And I was like, like Stephen Hawking kind of thing, but something happens and now you're brain dead and you're on a feeding tube and you're going to be that way for the rest of your life. She's like, what do you want done? (laughs) Like, what? <laughs> I just I couldn't handle. I it, she kept doing this too and I kept saying sh- her my answers were basically do I want to be unplugged do I not want to be unplugged or uh do I want to wait for for the, do I want it does it say depending on circumstances and all my answers were depends on circumstances and I was basically laying this on my wife as well and I was like okay you know listen lady you're nice and all but Honestly, can I just put down the person that's gonna make my decisions? And this is just me. I know that people have a different um, idea about this, but I was like, I want the most qualified, dispassionate person on the planet making decisions for me at that point in time. And to me, that's the attending physician. Like who is that who is there with the most knowledge and, and really, you know, could could make that decision and with, with the least amount of emotion involved in it? And and it's gotta be the doctor, right? And I was just thinking way into the future, like we've come so far in the past 20 or 30 years, you know, how do I know that brain dead actually means brain dead? I mean, let's be a little ridiculous about this and say in 40 years, who's to say that I'm making a legal decision now, if I never update the document, they're going to go back to the document I created in 2018 and it's 2058 and they're saying... You know well, he said he wanted this done in twenty eighteen, but in reality, we can do this, this, and this, and let's say my wife is dead, all my family members are dead. Who knows what the hell ever So somebody else is making this decision for me, and they're going back to a document I did in two thousand and eighteen. It doesn't make any
2: sense, Stephen well, yes, but this is the whole point of having an advanced directive. The advance directive is making sure that you're treated the way that you want to be treated right it's It's right. Fine. So, you know, are you brain dead? You know, did you want them to, you know, keep you plugged in just to see if, you know, things work out? You know, like it, it's, it's actually part of a de- de- the decision making process of, mm-hmm. you know, how you're going to get treated if you can't actually communicate how you want to be treated. Um, and, and, and right. a- as far as your idea that, um, you know, it's like, well, you know, they're, they're gonna be using like 40 year old data and it's like, well, not if you keep updating it as your opinions change. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of the point, right? You don't like write a, oh, yeah. an advanced directive and then just walk away and be like, well, we're good. And, and also, and, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, the, the point is, is that, you know, you review it every 10 years or whatever, like, like all good agreements that, that, you know, like, um, you know, to, to bring it back to CRM a little bit, you know, if you ever take like a agreement writing course, you know, they, they stress that it has to have a sunset clause because, mm-hmm. because situations change, right? Opinions change. Right. Um, the values that, you know, we're using to base our agreements on, you know, possibly have changed in 10 years, five years. And, and so, you know, like that, you know, th- there should be a review period where it's like, okay, well, it's been 10 years. Is this still, you know, what I want to do? And, and it, as far as like, well, you know, can I just, you know, can I just make my cat do it? I mean, right. he, he's pretty dispassionate, <laughs> you know, like he only really cares about naps and chicken. So, he, um, Ruckus would
1: literally reach up and flip the switch on you. <laughs>
2: like, where's my chicken?
1: Uh, <laughs> Well, see, this was my this is my problem, Stephen. Is is I, and I asked her exactly that. I was like, she's like, well, you're young, so you should come in every five. She said every five years, and and actually update these and make sure it's sterile line on your through wishes. And I said, okay, but let's look at worst case scenario here. I never come in. I forget I even did yeah. these. And then all of a sudden, somebody's coming back and going over an old document. That is the worst case scenario because what they didn't have. Was a I think what you had said like a sunset clause on it? Like, like after ten years, if I haven't come in to update it, I'd rather they just destroyed the document and there was no existing, there was no evidence of it whatsoever. Because I'd rather somebody had to make decisions in the moment rather than going back to a document that might be inaccurate or out of date. Because, like you you said, brain dead. That was my whole point. Brain dead now is different than we had a concept of brain dead fifty years ago when we didn't really know what was going on. We thought people were brain dead fifty years ago when they actually weren't, right? And and I know we have much better technology now, but what are we going to have in 10, 20, 30, 40 years and can you still do something with that? You know, are you actually brain dead or can we actually access you in another way? Yeah, but so, the other
3: thing is that you have to do all this in the United States' is healthcare system, right? <laughs> Which is like a gigantic leech too. that will drink money, right? So um if you if you did set those up and you were saying, well, I'd like to be kept, you know, on life support for X amount of years until you guys can discover the cure for what's going on. Or maybe, um, you know, my brain dead actually doesn't mean brain dead in 2050, right? That means that you have Mm -hmm. to live in the United States medical system for 30-something years, right? Until 2053. Well, in that amount of time, you could have crippled your wife. You could have crippled generations of kids. You could have, you know, eliminated any possibility of anyone in your family having a middle-class life. Just because you tried to stay alive in our medical system, so really, in the United States, it's kind of more of a, you know, do you want to do that to your family? Do you want them to live in you know crippling debt forever while they try to work on a cure to fix your whatever caused you to be brain dead? So yes. That's also a very a real aspect.
2: And and the other the other aspect is you can't just dump it on your on your spouse because the point of this is to. In, in some ways map out you know what your personal thought processes are on this so that they're not like oh crap Chris is in a, a coma what do I do and and they you know they guess and they second guess themselves about you know yeah. what it is you'd actually want when you know you know if you had it laid out they'd be like well you know I th- this isn't like an easy decision in any any way across the board yeah. but Mm-hmm. At least I know what Chris would have wanted.
3: So uh, right. Chris, did you talk to your wife about this? What does she want?
1: Uh, I did. And she's kind of, she's kind of in line with me. She's, you know, she would, she would be okay making decisions at the end, but she's also admitted that, listen, she doesn't have all the information and she'd be in an emotional state and wouldn't even be sure that, you know, she would want to do that. So, and I, I understand that's what the advanced directive is, is I'm making those decisions now for her basically. Um, but, she also understood my argument about, you know, what if we never change this and this legal document never goes away and it has an infinite lifespan? Well, it, it's tied to my lifespan. And, uh, and, and that's, I guess that's the part that was really scary is that the document, if I never went back and changed it, is going to be a legal document until I change it.
2: Well, I it's, mean, if they I, can find it. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, and that's actually been uh, uh, a, 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 Issue in uh, the medical system is that, you know, if, if you make it, if, if you make your advance directive at the VA and then you mm-hmm. end up at a private hospital halfway across the United States, are they right. going to think to look at the VA? Are they going to know who to Probably call? It oh. No. And, they're and, not. And, and, and this is, um, this has actually been issues in the case where like there wasn't like an immediately identified identifiable next of kin, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, like you know, people don't even necessarily know you have an advanced directive unless somebody's there to tell them, Right, right. Um, yeah, that's a whole other problem. Yeah.
3: And, and also, if you're talking about um, uh, just letting the most qualified physician make the decision, their decision is always to save. I mean, their job is to save lives, right? So, right. in the case that you are brain dead, they're going to do everything to keep you alive indefinitely, right? Because that's their job.
1: Theoretically. So yeah.
3: if it's possible for them to keep you alive, they're going to do it. And that's, where mm-hmm. you, that's where you need to decide, uh, is this the kind of life that I want to have? Uh, do I want to be kept on um, feeding tubes and, and kept alive in a hospital? Or do I just want them to go ahead and let me die? Right.
1: Doug, you had a comment?
4: Yeah. A couple things to, f- to follow up on is, is one, yeah, it has more to do with um, – legal issues so your directive is not necessarily it's there for um basically family members and if they know about it it's it's a it's very helpful for the legal so if you said that you'd actually like to you know be taken off life support um Mm -hmm. it actually helps the people who are there as your survivor so it's not necessarily um for you per se as it really will help out your family a lot um Uh, with the process and the second part is like if if you're thinking about 10 years um being like the medical you know like oh what will I have in 10 years um you're pretty good for about 10 years just assume if you haven't heard about this technology or medical breakthrough now it won't be available (laughs) to you in 10 years right it'll just be coming i mean the process of going through even from clinical trials tests you know, basically everything you you hear in the news is usually like a breakthrough in like the very first stage of a clinical trial or something like that. And to even get commercial, to even have it something available to you, you'll be lucky if you have it in the next 10 years. So you can pretty much make a decision knowing that, you know, you should be updating it every 10 years and yeah. yes, health will change, but... Um,
1: that's partially true, too, because if you are – if they are in a clinical trial phase, somebody who's brain dead and about to be unplugged is a pretty good candidate for a for a trial. No,
4: they, they don't <laughs> – you, you can't like ethically – There's there's no way that they'd be able to do a clinical trial on someone who's – that's not – yeah – they wouldn't be able to do that on you. Well,
1: but what if I what if I put it in my advanced directives? Like try everything, including experimental. <laughs> hey, I've seen that on ER. My sole that's that's of- why you
4: need
3: advanced directives. <laughs> I was gonna say if you're using television to make your do it, <laughs> Dude, you gotta listen to Doug.
1: <laughs> right. I'm just gonna put in my advanced directives. See season sixteen, episode five of ER. That's what I want done. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so okay I don't want to I don't want to beat the the head on this one let's let's just uh, what 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 are some other things that you guys can think of um, well first off let me let me tie up advanced directors a little bit because and, and wills actually because we all think well this is never going to happen to me but I know personally three people um, that have died that were CRM archaeologists um, under the age of 40 and I know one other person that was uh, severely injured on the job. Um, mm-hmm. It was actually a lightning strike. And she was she was lucky to come out of it, but now she's got severe um, disabilities uh, because of it. Um, she's still working as an archaeologist now, but she's got severe disabilities because of it. And it could have gone the direction of, you know, she needed to have this stuff in place, and she was in her 20s Yeah, when that happened. So we, we know people, we've all probably know people or have heard of people that this has happened to, and what are the chances they had some kind of paperwork in place? You know what I mean? So um, probably not very good because we're not taught to do that, and if we're not have a full time job, we don't get that sort of HR training that says, "Hey, you should do this." When some HR departments come in and say you should do this, or they hire a company to help everybody do that. So, what are some what are some other things you guys can think of in the? I'm calling this episode "Adulting." So, um, what <laughs> what other <laughs> can, can you guys? I mean, Bill, you're you're married. You've got kids. Yeah. Stephen, you're married. Um, you know, Doug, you're married. I'm married. What what are some things that we 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 would like to have thought about when we were in our early 20s that we should be doing that we wish we'd have done then to kind of you know, I guess secure our future? Stephen, you've got your your virtual hand up.
2: Yeah, it's um actually more the uh, um a, a kind of an old man rant um, <laughs> about about the word adulting. So I'm totally going to like sideline this episode right now that um, at some point being an adult became a bad thing. Right. Like, like, oh, don't make me adult. And it's like, like for my generation, adulting is what you wanted because adulting meant like, you know, like ice cream for breakfast. Right. It's like, screw you. I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, it turned into like, I don't want to have to do these things. And it's like, of course you do. That's your independence. That's, you know, you being an adult is is the, the goal because now no one's treating you like a kid.
3: That's right.
2: So, I don't really have anything other to add <laughs> to that. Um, yeah, what other adult things should do? Uh, like field techs or who who are you aiming this at?
3: Yeah. So one of the things that I remember I was made aware of is getting uh, disability insurance. And it kind of happened after I first started doing CRM, uh, just mm-hmm. the realization that I could get hurt. Right. With all mm-hmm. power invincible. But then uh, I realized that my company didn't have disability insurance. So I had health insurance, but the disability was supplemental. And then to try and make sure that that was maintained, um, you know, throughout my career, because it is much more likely that I'll get hurt. Well, and, and why don't you? And, and why don't you
1: explain disability insurance bill real quick for those that don't know what that is?
3: No, gosh, it's difficult for me to explain because I don't actually know all the stuff in my insurance. I read it, and it's just impossible to understand, right? So, it's
1: so like you're, overall, how's it different than health insurance? Yeah.
3: So, the disability insurance is a supplemental um, amount of money that you're. Uh, in my case, it was connected to my employer's health insurance that will give me a certain amount of income uh, for a longer period of time than just disability that comes from the government right So mm-hmm. it depends on how much money you pay, but you can get up to a year and it's not going to be a hundred percent your wages. Um, in the when I first started out, I remember it was just 50% of my wages and so it would kick in after the government's disability, was over and i can't rem- i can't remember if my health insurance also was maintained throughout that but i believe that my health insurance would be maintained and the disability but there was mm-hmm. there's a lot of options and i worked for several different companies and and it's never the same but it was basically it's it's some of your income after you're disabled Right. to extend your uh, ability to pay your bills for longer.
1: Okay. Well, on that note, we are going to take a break real fast, and then we're going to come back with a little bit of a shorter segment uh, and then head right into the recordings from the SAA's 2018 edition. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS, or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. Tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras, plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Okay. We're back with CRM Mark episode 136, the uh, adulting edition. And Stephen wanted me to call it that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So uh, right at the end of the last segment, we were talking about disability insurance. And Bill, you brought that up. I'm pretty sure I have to go back and look at my policy because we actually just only did this last uh, fall. But my wife and I got separate um, life insurance policies because we haven't worked for a company in a really long time that actually did anything like that. So we just did it on our own. And I mean, it's not like a huge policy, but it's something, you know, if I died, I think my wife gets like 200 grand or something like that. I think we pay each like $70 a month or something like that for the the policy, which really isn't terrible. And, uh, but included in that, I'm pretty sure I'd have to go back and look because I remember we had all these discussions is some disability insurance. And in, in, in the context of this life insurance policy, it basically just means I had to write down the things, all the things that I'm doing right now. And if I got injured, whether it was, on the job, off the job, or during uh, riding or anything like that, then, um, you know, however I got injured, if I was not able to continue doing the thing that I was doing, even if I can do other stuff, if I wasn't able to continue doing the thing that I was doing, I would get disability insurance from that. I would get some sort of paycheck. That's a that's a percentage of whatever the hell I was making doing it. So,
3: so you're, hopefully it's, you're yeah. right, Chris. It was attached to life insurance. It wasn't attached to
1: health uh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, so the, yeah, so the the type and amount of disability insurance you can get attached to your life insurance really varies depending on the life insurance company you go with. And I, and I'll tell everybody right now, I'm not, we're not selling for these guys. We don't have an affiliate relationship or anything. But Mass Mutual, if you can find, they they did a really good. Uh, at least the person I know there, uh, at the local office, they did a really great. Um, you know, we had like two months worth of questions. We, we met probably four or five times because I was really like, I want to make sure I understand every single aspect of this before, before I start paying on it for the next 20 years, which I think is the length of time that I pay on this policy.
3: Um, well, it'll change depending on what, how old you are. So it changes but, yeah. how much you pay it changes as you get older.
1: That's the thing. This one doesn't. This one, I'm uh, going to pay this amount. Unless I want to change the amount that I'm getting, then it'll change. Ooh. But this one's locked in for whatever the term was uh, that I'm paying on. So that was kind of the benefit of doing this at my age is, is you know, it's not, gonna, it's not going to change for, I think it's the next 20 years. I'll pay $70 a month. Unless, like I said, the only thing, they said that's unlikely though, because generally as you get older, you make more money. I was like, you don't know archaeologists, do you? But anyway... Um, They said, as you get older, you make more money and you have more assets and you have like kids and things like that. And you'll, you'll want more money back. So the, the, the 200 or 300 grand or whatever that my wife would get if I died, uh, might not be enough in 20 years. And of course, that number is adjusted for inflation as well. It's not a set number. It's not it's 200 now, but it's not in twenty years. It's whatever the equivalent of 220 years is. So um, my point with all this is that life insurance is not as expensive as you think it is. And it's a bill that you probably should just have. It comes out of our checking account automatically. It, it just it just happens. We don't even think about it. Um, you know, we honestly really couldn't afford it. Uh, for all intents and purposes, but you kind of can't afford not to have it. Honestly, it's one of those things. Um, that's just like car insurance. We always get pissed off at car insurance, especially when your car is paid off because you almost never use it. But that one time you actually do need to use it. You know, you're screwed. So.
3: Yeah. And uh, we used to have mass mutual when I was a grad student in Arizona. So yeah. they're, they're pretty good. You're right. They'll listen to a lot of, uh, they're not the cheapest, but they'll listen to your questions. and They'll walk you through it. But right. we just recently switched because now we have new employers New, ah right. New employment status. Uh but I you know, I'll say that uh life insurance is, you know, paramount. My unfortunately, about ten years ago, my father passed away and mm-hmm. uh his wife also passed away, and my wife and I decided to uh take care of become guardians of my sister who was twelve at the time and now she's about to finish college. Nice. But the uh my uh stepmom had uh a life insurance policy. And my dad had life insurance too. So, you know, it's, it's sad to think about it, but I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. there's money that's left over for, uh, your funeral and everything. And also to take care of many of the bills and to pay for all the legal stuff that goes along with that. And then in their case, they also had large enough policies that my sister was able to get money that she used to go to college and stuff. And she still has a lot of it left. And, Mm um, you know, they, they didn't have any kind of, so going back to the directives, they had no directives. My wife and Uh I had no idea what to do. Uh, I, we were living in Seattle and they were in Idaho. So, uh, you know, my sister got taken by CPS because there was no one to take care of. They didn't say who to contact in an emergency. There was no plan for any of that stuff. And so, uh, it was just a totally crazy situation. Some people came and be, They assumed guardianship of her that weren't even in our family. And then um, family members were asking, you know, what they could do. And the way the law was set up, the next closest, next of kin was the one who was supposed to step forward and take care of everything, which was me. Which that's great because uh, my wife and I were in a position where we could actually do that. But what if I had been, you know, 18 years old or Mm -hmm. uh, 16 years old, right? Legally, I'm the next person in line and I'm supposed to go through all these legal documents to either accept or deny my ability. It was just, it was all over the place. The stuff that happens when you pass away without having a directive. um, I mean, it's stressful. It it hurt us for months and months. We had to do, we had to go before the court and prove who we were and uh, Mm. do background checks and stuff like that to petition to take guardianship of my sister. And it took, you know, thousands of dollars of our own money. And then, um, I don't know, it was just a long, long story. But uh, the fact that they did not have a will and they did not have uh, any kind of directives put me in a tough spot that took my wife and I months and months to figure out. At the time when my father's dead, so mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if you if you don't have it, then you're kind of setting yourself up. And if you're young and you think, well, I don't have a I don't have a spouse, I don't have a family, and you're not thinking about these kind of things, what what is your parent? What are your parents going to do? You know, what yeah. what are your aunts and, and grandparents going to do? And a lot of people's parents, you know, if they have a sufficient means, they actually have their life insurance set up, so that if anything happens, it's portion of it's supposed to go to you. They might have, you know, stuff set up so in their house, if something happens, and the proceeds of their house are to go to you. Well, if you die, then that can set up that whole, and it's sad to think about. But the the battle between um, siblings who are trying to take your hard or trying to figure out how to allocate money. I mean, it's crazy what ends up happening when someone passes away if if they think that money is involved. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that can actually destroy your family. If you don't say anything that was supposed to come to me, just give it to my sister and brother or just let my mom take care of it or my stepmom, who cares? You know, I'm dead anyway. Any of the proceeds that solves that whole problem. And you don't have to worry about your family after you're dead fighting over money that's supposed to be allocated to mm-hmm. you. Yeah, it can be, it can be bad. And you might think, well, I'm dead. What do
1: I care? But uh, if you care at all about your, your family members or your close ones, then, you, then you'll, then you you'll do something about it, you know? And, and, you know, like we're saying, none of this stuff has to be super expensive. And in fact, if you're young, it probably isn't expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, it's probably really affordable. So well, they
3: love young people because they know they're going to pay for 50 years. So your rates are way lower. And also that you have less likelihood of actually getting hurt.
1: Yeah, indeed. Um, so I, I think the last thing that we'll mention here in this uh, in this shorter uh, panel style show uh, before we get to the SAA clips is uh, finances. I, I'm not qualified at all to speak about finances, but um, I know uh, some things that I would rather have done when I was younger versus in my 30s and now 40s um, are actually just putting away a little bit of money. Um, And I don't mean just uh, just putting in a savings account, although if that's all you're doing, that's still better than nothing. Um, But I mean, just like micro micro amounts, especially if you're in your early 20s right now, then this can really add up. And one of the apps that we talk about on the uh, architect podcast is called Stash. And I think it's called Stash Invest or something like that when you actually go try to find it on the app store. But this thing has has really low cost, um, almost nothing, actually. Which I'm not really sure. I think they're just counting on volume to make money, but, uh, cause they, they do trades for you, but you can actually go in and do investments like micro invest. Like I can invest a dollar right now into Tesla if I want. Um, or you can invest in, um, you can invest in, uh, collections of things, basically mutual funds and and different collections of stocks. Like if you're really passionate about green energy stocks, then they collect all these ones into this thing. And you're like, I want a dollar every two weeks to go into this thing. It might not sound like much, but that stuff does build up. And if you set it on an auto stash, they call it uh, whatever time frame you want. And like I said, even if it's just a small amount, if you're in your early twenties, that small amount, once you start forgetting about it, Will eventually grow into a, a pretty sizable um, a pretty sizable amount. So, um, if you can't save, Bill's saying in the background, save ten percent of your income or five percent. If you can't, even if you can't do that, if you're saving anything, don't look at those numbers. Those numbers are goals, but don't look at those numbers as limitations. If you're like, I can't afford to put ten percent of my income into an investment. Put something in there. That's what I wish I'd done because I was hampered by the numbers. But when I was in my twenties, I was like, "Well, I can't afford to do this much, so I'm not I'm not going to do any." But if I'd put five dollars a month away when I was twenty, then that that would have gone into something, you know, and, and it would be something now. So, Yeah,
3: anyway. Sometimes my ten percent when I was unemployed was like ten bucks, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, yeah, ten dollars of an unemployment check. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, all right, well, we're going to end this, uh, this portion of this episode right here, but don't, don't, uh, turn us off because we're going to run a a quick little ad for something else. Um, probably if I had to uh, guess the, uh, 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 Simon Fraser University. We, we advertised for them last year and actually got them a couple of uh, of people into their program. They're really great CRM program. They've updated it uh, even more, and it sounds like a really good program. I got to talk to one of the directors of it, um, John Welsh, and he's a really great guy. And uh, he was actually trying to talk me into doing the PhD program there <laughs> up in Vancouver, which there's worse places to be than Vancouver, Canada. Um, but uh, check that out. Um, they're 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 advertising with us for a few episodes. So you'll hear them a few times. Um, so like I said, check those out, but then stick around for the uh, SA 2018 recordings. And also if you're doing anything as, um, as an adult, uh, if you're doing anything that you think other people should be doing, or maybe you found something that's really good and affordable for field technicians, please put it in the comments. If you saw this on Facebook, comment there, you know, comment on the website, wherever you want to. So we want to hear what you're doing and we want to hear what's working. And also we want to hear what's not working. Like if you got scammed by somebody and it's just like, wasn't what you thought it was, let's hear about that too. So, all right, we're going to take a short break, like I said, and we will be back with some recordings from the SAA's 2018. Thank you. Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia, has launched a professional online master's program built by and for cultural heritage management practitioners. The thesis-based MA or coursework-only graduate certificate both offer integrated study of HRM's ethical, legal, business, and research priorities. The MA thesis requirements comply with registered professional archaeologists and other jurisdictional standards. This is the perfect graduate program for bachelor-level CRM practitioners ready to make a career commitment but not ready to relocate or quit their job. We have advertised for SFU in the past, and we had a long podcast about SFU's program, and I highly recommend it. If you're looking to get a graduate degree in cultural resource management, this is the way to go. Apply today at www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology. That's www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology to take your career to new levels today. this is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the exhibit hall of the 2018 Society for American Archaeology Conference, and I'm with Stacy Chambliss from the SRI Foundation's Passport in Time. Stacy, how's it
5: going? Uh, it's going well, thank you.
1: All right, so tell me what Passport in Time is. What do you guys do?
5: Passport in Time is actually the Forest Service volunteer program that does all the heritage projects. So it runs the gamut from excavation to restoration of old buildings. They do oral histories, surveys, metal detecting. They actually get out and dig up um, dinosaur bones. So it's just kind of any way that they can engage the public doing these kinds of projects on Forest Service land.
1: So it's focused around uh, volunteers and I assume education about archeological practices and preservation things and stuff like that. Absolutely. Okay, and how is it uh, how is it funded? Did the Forest Service throw money at this, or does Sri? I mean, how does that work? It
5: is, it is fully funded through the Forest Service. Okay, so it is a public um, one of their public outreach programs that the Forest Service and it um, started in 1989, and so it's been around for almost 30 years now.
1: Okay, and what I do know of Sri, like the. Uh, the CRM firm. It's largely southwest and, and around in that area. Is Passport in Time in all the forests, uh, U.S. forests around the country?
5: It can be located in any forest, and we also partner with BLM, and we've had a state forest actually at one point, but it's in any forest, so pretty much any state. Um, there's mainly in the west just because there's a lot more public land out there. So,
1: Yeah, I live in Reno, so... It's pretty much an entire public land state. (laughs) Um, So, how do people find out more about this and possibly get on a project?
5: If you go to our website, it's passportintime.com. All current projects are listed there with their um, the listing. I'm sorry, the description and any qualifications that you need, the facilities that are available. And there is an online application right there. You put that in, you go into the pool of applicants, that goes to the project leader, and then they make their selections.
1: Okay, sounds good. Thanks a lot.
5: You're very welcome.
1: This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network of the Society for American Archaeology 2018 annual meeting. And I'm here in the exhibit hall with Rob Witcher from the journal Antiquity. Uh, Rob, why don't you tell us about the journal?
6: Well, Antiquities are an international journal based in Durham, in the north of England, and we cover all aspects of archaeological research theory, method, new discoveries, uh, science, all periods and all regions. We're here in uh, uh, Washington to meet our authors, to uh, listen to papers, and uh, try and attract uh, new contributors, uh, find new subscribers uh, and readers. And, and how often does the journal publish? So antiquity publishes uh, six times a year. Um, we publish around uh, fifteen or so research articles uh, uh, with each issue, uh, plus a range of debate articles, uh, reviews. And just out of curiosity, especially for authors and people wanting to submit,
1: this is always a big question. How what's the turnaround time? If I send you an article, when do you think it will? If if it's going to get published, when do you think that would happen? What's the turnaround time?
6: Uh, well, at the moment we're just uh, moving to a new uh, a new approach. So we're moving to first view. So uh, previously we've had to uh, accept papers and then wait for uh, yeah. getting on for twelve months before we get that out in print. Okay. Um, but now we're moving to first view over the next uh, over the next twelve months or so. So we'll be able to turn around papers much more quickly. So faster decisions, faster time to online first, and then mm-hmm. into the print journal. So and one reason we're doing that is to try and attract. Uh, Uh, areas of archaeological research that really want a faster turnaround time, particularly archaeological science, where it's important to get those results out quickly. Um, So we're uh, making this change uh, generally to help our uh, contributors, but particularly looking for those areas of uh, kind of innovation that really need to publish fast.
1: Okay, and I notice on your sign here, it says, read the journal at cambridge.org forward slash AQY. Is that behind a paywall, or can you read some of the journal without uh, without doing that?
6: Uh, so Antiquity is um, a subscriber-based uh, journal, so we, uh, we have no society behind us. We're just uh, entirely funded um, by subscriptions. Um, we're also uh, a charitable organisation, um, so as part of our charitable activities, we uh, make a, a number of articles free to access each issue, so we highlight three uh, featured articles, research articles, which are free to access for a couple of months, um, plus we also make a number of uh, book reviews or debate articles free to access with each uh, with each issue, so that uh, um, readers around the world who, who don't have a subscription can access some of that material, and you can find what's free with each issue by going to antiquity.ac.uk where we have a page that gathers together all of our free material or maybe an editor's choice an article from our archive um, so that you can uh, find the, the full range of material that we publish
1: okay well thanks a lot and uh, you said the website before i could do it so <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes that's antiquity.ac.uk thank you thanks a lot this is Chris Webster at the Society for American Archaeology Conference 2018 in the Exhibit Hall, and I'm sitting here with Christopher Doerr, the current president of the Register of Professional Archaeologists. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, so tell me, what is the RPA? The RPA is the Register of
7: a professional archaeologist, and it is archaeology standards and credentialing organization. Uh, We're 20 years old this year, and we were founded in 1998 by actually the four organizations that we call our sponsoring organizations, which are the Society for American Archaeology, the American Anthropological Association, the Society for Historical Archaeology, and the Archaeological Institute of America.
1: Okay, and how does somebody become a registered professional archaeologist? The process is actually fairly easy, and it is all online. So
7: you can go to our website at rpanet.org and go to the page about becoming a registrant and uh, do, the, do the process online. So there are uh, ancillary documents that are required, and you can just scan those as PDFs and upload them with your, with your application. And a little plug here as well for new graduates, if you apply for registration within six months of your
1: degree, the application fee is waived. And I believe there's still a, a discount for people who are a member of one of the sponsoring organizations. Is that correct? That is correct. Annual dues
7: are heavily discounted if you belong to one of those four sponsoring organizations. So, for example, this year uh, our our undiscounted dues are $125, and if you're a member of the sponsoring organizations, they're $45. So those will go up
1: slightly next year, but there's still a, a huge discount rate. Yeah, I didn't even know they were that high because I've never paid that price. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. me neither. (laughs) All right, well, thanks a lot, Chris. You're welcome, Chris. Thank you. All right, this is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Society for American Archaeology meetings in Washington, D.C., 2018. And I'm in the exhibit hall at the Lamar Institute booth, and I'm talking with Dan Elliott. Dan, what is the Lamar Institute?
8: Lamar Institute is a nonprofit organization, been around since 1982. We do archaeology and public outreach and uh, history research and uh, public education. And we we try to do things that aren't getting done by the universities or by the private archaeology companies, Uh, looking for opportunities to save archaeological sites and uh, do research in areas that's been neglected.
1: Okay, and uh, and I know I, I became aware of you when I was at the uh, University of Georgia, of course. Um, but where do you guys work? Like, what, where do you do projects? Is it just in Georgia? Or do you branch out farther than that?
8: Well, we're based in Savannah, Georgia, but we've worked as far out as Saipan and uh, wow. the Bahamas, and we we mostly work in the southeastern U.S., Georgia, South Carolina, uh, but we've we worked. It everywhere and we're have have trial, we'll travel. we will travel we will work we're currently uh, applying for a project in long island new york to document british revolutionary war forts and battlefields nobody had ever studied those very much so that's a neglected resource and long island is developing and has developed so there it's a uh, threatened resource we, we like to protect threatened things
1: okay and uh What about your workforce? Do you find local volunteers? Do you bring archaeologists up with you? How do you do that?
8: Well, we work mostly with grant funds. So, you know, we write in uh, salaries for ourselves on the projects that we get and and crew members. Uh, We also do use volunteers, uh, particularly on our uh, battlefield archaeology projects where we use a lot of metal detecting. Uh, We've been pretty uh, on the vanguard of incorporating private uh, private uh, collectors and, and uh, metal detector people to, to get them to uh, see the light and, and come over to our ar- real archaeological thinking and uh, scientific pursuit.
1: <laughs> awesome. So where can people go to find out more about what the Lamar Institute is doing and, and maybe uh, help volunteer and work with you guys? Well, our website is thelamarinstitute.org. Uh,
8: Lamar Institute, if you Google that, you'll probably find us. And uh, well, we have about 200 archaeological reports that are available for free that can be downloaded at our website that give you a, a good idea of what we do. Uh, and if you contact me, um, if, if we have projects coming up and you w- want to volunteer, I'll try to hook you up.
1: All right. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. Well, thank you. Uh, this is Chris Webster at the Society for American Archaeology meeting in Washington, D.C., and I'm not in the poster room because I missed it yesterday, but I'm with P.T. Ashlock, who had a uh, a poster, and since I don't have it, um, just tell us roughly what the title was, unless you can read it off your uh, phone there. I'll,
9: I'll give you the title. <laughs> Essentially, the poster was a focus on 3D technologies, virtual reality, augmented reality, immersive media, um, uh, 3D scanning, and how we integrate that into public archaeology, so...
1: All on a two-dimensional poster.
9: All on a two-dimensional poster. We did, have a, we did have a picture of some of our 3D work there, along with some VR headsets for just, just for the fun of it. But
1: uh, When do you think we're going to have a VR poster room? That's my question, where you just you know, walk through and nice. you put on the...
9: I would love to see immersive technologies in <laughs> posters. I would love to see digital posters where people are able to come and interact, just like you can at some of the museums with touchscreens and those types of things, because then it allows the user to... Intake this data and delve as deeply as they want to into it.
1: I mean, uh, we're kind of going off topic here, but a lot of high end, like Android devices, and then from the iPhone 8 up um, to the 10 they have augmented reality capabilities. So building an application in through the SAA that people can put stuff on their posters and then it interacts and comes out, that would be amazing.
9: QR codes, being able to, to, to link to that immersive media, it's gonna bring the next generation to a connection with archeology. span uh, Everybody's so tactile, everybody is so right. involved in their devices and these platforms, both Android and Apple, have the ability to do so. And the weakness that we see in this, which is something that we brought up, was that there are not a, a lot of archeologically based apps that capture VR AR. Uh, we're getting there, but we need to see that, uh, that grow. So that's, that's something that could be improved upon. Okay. Digital poster symposium.
1: <laughs> so getting back to your poster, what was the what was the um, the basic thesis? Of what were you trying to convey with well, that poster? the
9: premise was that we can, this type of technology is becoming more readily available and it can be introduced. Not everybody needs to spend $1,500 on an Oculus to be able to introduce this to the local museum or to local kids in outreach that you're trying to reach when you're, when you're doing a public event. So you can go and, and the devices we had were, one was AR, VR connected and I'm not going to mention any specific brands because we're not here to support that. <laughs> but just the fact that you could buy things for under $100, produce this information, use Sketchfab and photogrammetry to produce 3D models, which people could then see in these VR and augmented reality scenarios. And to get that information of, you know, your local artifacts, your local sites into an immersive state where people could interact with it and take the site back to the people, mm-hmm. if you will, without them having to visit.
1: Okay. And, uh, and you don't need a you don't need like you need some technical knowledge, but you don't need a ton of technical knowledge really to do this. I mean, I mean,
9: if you've got a smartphone and you know, with app development, like I said, we need to do we do need to see more of that. But to just interact with it, as long you know, you put the device in the headset, turn it on, link it up, and, and you're pretty much good to go.
1: All right, so hey, if people have more uh, questions for you, is there anywhere they can reach you online or
9: um, the Lamar Institute? They can send questions there. Um, they can also reach me at ancientarchaeology at gmail.com. 24 7 so feel free to send me an email and i'll do my best to answer your questions so
1: man how did you get ancient archaeology at gmail.com
9: email (laughs) since i was probably 14 years old and it's a long one and it's spelled in the british spelling a-n-c-i-e-n-t-a-r-c-h-a-e-o-l-o-g-y at gmail.com
1: fantastic thanks pt so
9: yeah appreciate it chris this is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast
1: Network in the Exhibit Hall on, sorry, in the poster room, uh, pretty close to the Exhibit Hall, uh, on Thursday are the Society for American Archaeology meetings. And I'm here with Caitlin Moore from the uh, University of Nevada, Reno, and her poster, Late Pleistocene and Early Holocene Lake Level Fluctuations in the Lahontan Basin, Nevada an expanded approach. So, Caitlin, what is your paper all about, or your poster?
0: Um, so, 10 years ago, Dr. Ken Adams from DRI and colleagues, they came up with a hypothesis that if Paleo-Indian groups were utilizing wetlands, then we should expect wetland sites and the density to increase between 1,200 and 1,235 meters above sea level. And so I expanded their approach because they used a small data set from the Winnemucca Dryland Lake Basin and the uh, Black Rock Desert. So I expanded that and used, um, I took uh, archaeological data from the entire Lahontan Basin region which covers a big portion of northwestern Nevada. Um, and I so I collected 184 sites, and then I did four uh, statistical analyses to kind of gauge the relationship. Are sites clustering between 1200 and 1235, or if we're seeing, um, or if they're not clustering, and we're seeing them more in random areas on the landscape? So I ran a regression chi-square goodness of fit test kernel density estimation um, and then I used a Fisher's natural weight classification which all four tests basically are kind of telling me our sites clustering Um, except for the kernel density estimation that tells me I'm looking at if our sites randomly distributed or are they clustering in a specific area and that's what the kernel density does and long story short my results tell me that sites are clustered between 1200 and 1235 however we there's this um, a lot of sites both below 1200 meters above sea level and greater than 1235 as well as outside the Great Basin uh, the Laho Basin, which is we're talking it's up and over the mountains that kind of like gauge the basin um so while sites are clustering, they're also going into upland areas, and it could be so collect toolstone because sites are um, have are clustered around some toolstone source, tool sources. And then there's also possibility that they could be going up and collecting geophytes, which are carrots, potatoes, um, underground storage organs, basically that are very high caloric, um, have a high caloric value could be following um, large mammals um, to, and hunting them as they go from basin to basin so basically yes sites are clustering close to terminal Pleistocene early Holocene wetlands but we're also seeing them in other areas and so land use patterns may be more uh, complex than we realize and that's basically this poster in a nutshell
1: all right. Do you have any uh, plans to continue this and maybe expand it further a little bit and do different things?
0: Um, uh, right now, I don't have any plans. This poster is is my thesis research, and I just finished it up. I think it would be really awesome to reconstruct lake levels in other basins, especially in the northwest portion of the Great Basin where lake levels are... Um, they fluctuate independently from each other, but they there's a lot of um, connection between the different basins and some researchers hypothesize that groups traveled uh, north and south between these basins so it'd be interesting to reconstruct lake levels in different areas and then gauge the relationship between uh, site density and those lake levels and see if we are seeing a similar pattern or not
1: all right thanks a lot thank you That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email Chris at ArchaeologyPodcastNetwork.com. Support the show and the network at com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Adios. Bye. God, the count started 100 with Doug. This, this might take a while. A, this might take a while. Yeah, we'll just see. I don't know if Scottish numbers are different than, like, regular numbers. Maybe it won't take a while.
4: Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so at 88. is a exactly. Scottish one. Uh, okay. That's uh, the Scottish
3: one. Yeah. Have you ever noticed I always just go, bye-bye, and then I mute mine right away because I'm laughing. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm laughing every week, man. It's the best part of every week recording this. <laughs>
1: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just 7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com/members for more info.